Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome, everybody, to Making Data Simple. I hope everyone is healthy, safe, finding some positivity out there, and uh, your own way of making a difference. Today, I have with me Peter Wang, who is the co-founder and CEO of Anaconda. Peter has been developing commercial computing and visualization software for over 15 years. He has experience in software design, including 3D graphics, geophysics, large data visualization, financial risk modeling. His interest in vector computing and interactive visualization led to co-found Anaconda, which we'll talk about in a second. And he's also involved with the Python data science community, which I have some questions about that as well. Also with Peter is my good friend, and I think has been on the podcast before, Shadi Kopti, who is the VP of Offering Management. He's got CloudPack for Data, if you've heard me talk about those products, Data Ops, Governance, Watson Tools, Runtime, Manage uh, Bias, etc. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Al. Shadi, you know I, I've got to give you a hard time uh, it, throughout the podcast since we used to work so tightly together on, on a lot of the Watson products. <laughs> so you guys both staying healthy, staying positive, I hope. I presume you're working from home? Yes, definitely. So, Peter, how is it to be a CEO and drive an organization from your home? Well, it's easier since everyone is doing it, right? If we had you know, taken a leap and moved to being all remote, and everyone else was still, you know, having offices and everything else, I think it feel like we're doing something weird. But since everyone's doing it, it's sort of like, you know, we're all just going to figure this out. So there's a, a lot of lot of new learnings, but but I think we're figuring it out. Are you dying to get back to the office? I don't know when it's going to happen. So I'm not trying to put it out there as sort of a thing to look forward to. I do look forward to seeing all my folks again. But we've been a relatively distributed company for a long time, uh, even though most of us are here in Austin. I do look forward to seeing other people. I love being with people. Is it kind of been a blessing in disguise in some sense to be able to be at home with your family, which, you know, you may not ever have that opportunity again. <laughs> it has been really nice to not have constant travel. I, I would say one of the biggest things for our industry maybe to think about is that moving away from that brutal conference schedule and conference cadence, it's probably better for the planet, you know, from a carbon footprint standpoint. But mm -hmm. also it makes us think about, you know, how often do I really need to drag hundreds of people away from their families to meet for a day or two? to talk about stuff, right? And so I think we're maybe shifting as a company, maybe an inflection point, not just us as a company, but as an industry, hopefully, moving to um, you know, normalizing some level of being more efficient in virtual uh, things. But being home with family has, has been great. Outside of travel, which I think will absolutely change, do you have a perspective on one other area you think it will absolutely change as a result of COVID and us being uh, quarantined at home? The question is how fast the change will come, but I think it's made a lot of people ask hard questions about, number one, work-life balance in the nuclear family, especially for professional, you know, double-income sort of folks who relied so much on, you know, commercial providers of healthcare and child services for them to think about, this is really tough, right? Because we've now had to take on, I mean, my family is one of those, we've had to take on all the childcare stuff internally. And so it's kind of called into question, put some cracks, I guess, into the theory of the nuclear family. And the second thing is schooling and education overall. It's not a massive sudden instant change right now, but I think it started a lot of people asking questions that in the past would never have been questioned. Yeah, good point. 
Shadi, your family hadn't kicked you out of the house yet? No, they, they still allow me to stay around here. So that's that's working well. At, at first, it was tough, you know, for uh, for them, certainly. Uh, but they just got used to it. I think to your uh, to your question about what will change, I'll, I'll take a different angle on this one. Yeah. Acceleration of, of some of the uh, internet-based, digital-based industries is a real thing. I think, you know, after this, food delivery will not go back to where it was. I think the restaurant businesses will... We'll see a serious shift in in people want to consume things this way. You know, certainly other like digital retail, which has been going on for a long while. I also believe we'll get a, a nice acceleration that will will stay with us after we're back to normal. So, Peter, I, I know you have a degree in physics from Cornell. Mm-hmm. So, how do you make the transition to first to computer science and then data science? Well, uh, I've always been into computers, and I've always been a computer nerd. In fact, I thought about majoring in computer science when I went to college, but my father convinced me um, to, to do physics instead because I do love science. But at the end of when I graduated, the dot-com, the, the, the 99, 98 timeframe dot-com boom was just in full swing, and I, uh, I, I jumped into that. And so I ended up in the software industry, and I've never left. But in doing the software, I mean, about five years after I entered into the industry, I found myself doing consulting using Python, but leveraging my scientific and mathematical backgrounds. So I was doing engineering uh, consulting using Python, C++, of course, a lot of other things. And then after about six years of doing that, I realized that Python was taking over simulation for business data analysis, Um, not just like, you know, MATLAB kinds of use cases, you know, uh, SAS and then Tableau sorts of things. And so I thought that it would be a good time to um, push the ecosystem and take a strong stand that Python is good for doing business data analysis and a new kind of data analysis. And that's sort of how we launched the whole PyData thing and why I started the company. So let's let's go there. Um, there's a reason I have both of you on, and we'll get to that in a bit. But I, I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind, talk a bit about Anaconda, what it is, and again, reiterate how the company got started, what your sweet spot is. I'll stop there. We got started because we felt like uh, my co-founder is the, uh, Travis Oliphant, the, the creator of NumPy and SciPy, and uh, we felt like Python could absolutely make it in the business data analysis world and the world of big data that was coming and kind of in full swing at the time. But we knew that there had to be more things built into it. And we knew that if we just waited for the, the hodgepodge of volunteers to push it, that it wouldn't move fast enough. So we formed a company to accumulate resources to, to support, be a vendor to support businesses, trying to harness the open source stuff. It's a very different kind of motivation and, and sort of corporate mission, I think, than most companies. But we absolutely started as a movement company, and we continue to the, to this day in that way. When, when was that? About 2012? What, 2012, what year? January 2012, yep. January 2012. And where were you before that? Um, I was at a, I was independent for a little while, and before that, I was at a, a little consulting company here in Austin called Enthought. And we did a lot of the scientific Python consulting stuff. Has the growth exceeded your expectations? That would be a fair statement. <laughs> we've yep. been wildly, we've been successful beyond our wildest dreams, I think, in some of this. So in the open source space, I mean, is this is predicated on a subscription business? Yes, we do have a software. We started as a consulting company with training, things like that. And then about four years ago, we started making the journey into being a product company. And so now the bulk of our revenue comes from software product sales. And that is for a different set of software than our open source packages. It's to uh, it's to help businesses take advantage of the open source stuff, but it's not like some, you know, uh, souped up version of the open source, which many open source companies are like that, but we're not, we're not like that. 
So what use case, if I'm a client or if I'm a listener out there that's, uh, you know, you hearing you talk about Anaconda, what use case would make me say, hey, look, I got to call this company right now? The best way to think about us is we are a bridge between enterprise needs and um, the Wild West of open source innovation. So you call us when you've got data scientists and IT folks who cannot seem to find a, a good middle ground about how to proceed on operationalizing their data science workflows, on how to secure and govern the kinds of uh, data science pipelines and software artifacts that the, the groups need in order to, you know, to do their work. IT frequently calls us because they're like, hey, we've got hundreds of people using all of this free open source stuff, and we're just trying to run this in production. We need to talk to somebody. You know, is there someone we can call to ask questions about Python? Are we doing it right? How do we secure and govern this? Et cetera, et cetera. What are best practices? What are other people in my industry doing? Anaconda is the go-to place for that. Let me let me just pause here and uh, jump in because I think you talked about the bridge between enterprise and open source. Shadi, I think this is where I want to bring you in. Mm-hmm. In that, as we, we talked about earlier, you're leading a large part of our portfolio around CloudPath for data, data ops, and Watson tools. You helped to spearhead a partnership with IBM and Anaconda. Why the partnership? What's, what's the value prop? You know, before the value prop, just take a step back. As we're trying to help uh, enterprises with AI for business, one of the uh, big impediments to success is skills. Companies can't seem to find enough data scientists to do the work uh, that they need. And if you're a modern data scientist today, thanks in large part to the work that the Anaconda team did, open source data science is the the go-to tool. That's where people learn about data science. That's how they get into the profession of data science. So if we are to support our customers, we need our platform, Cloudpack for Data, to wholeheartedly embrace the data scientist, the open source data scientist. Uh, partnering with Anaconda as a leader in the space is a no-brainer. The place where Anaconda is better together with IBM is that Anaconda's got the connections into the open source community. And as Peter said, is capable of making sure that whatever is brought into inside enterprises from open source innovation is tested, is supported, so that our customers wouldn't have to make the trade-off between uh, governance and security and, and innovation. That's the place where, where we found a better together with Anaconda. What's the value that you saw as you looked at a relationship with a big company like IBM? One of the big things here is that our company, our open source stuff has been used so much that we're unlike a lot of other startups in that we have just massive reach. Everyone is using our open source stuff. So we have massive brand reach we don't have, we've not stood up the, the sales team to be able to reach all those people and understand their use cases, talk to them, through, you know, talk them through the product, things like that. So partnering with IBM, we just feel like we have a really great partner to help us get all of that feedback from customers, product moved out to the field faster. But the second thing that's really important too is that we are really well recognized and loved by the user and the practitioner cohort. But as data science is becoming more mainstream within businesses, a lot of the IT leaders and a lot of the, the folks in the kind of the CIO kind of position, they are looking to more traditional, well-established companies to validate some of these newer things, right? So having IBM be a partner for us, it also helps validate our solution, helps validate to that side of the house, so to speak, that we are legit. You know, even though all the practitioners are, of course, they're saying, oh, of course, Anaconda, we use it all the time. You can imagine your CIO is like, who are these Anaconda people? What is this Python stuff? 
when we partner with IBM, there's simply no question. It's like, okay, yeah, this is ready to go. You know, everyone's happy. And, you know, it's sort of like there's a good aspect there. And then uh, lastly, you know, there's a deeper thing here, which is that I feel like, you know, when I talked about us starting this whole company as part of a broader mission, which is to build a movement around getting data science and these analytical tools into everyone's hands, in order for that movement to succeed in the long term and to be an enduring force, we need to partner with big, strong players like IBM that can uh, really, you know, for lack of a better term, help us with the marketing of that, help basically the community understand how to talk about what it does so that it's not sidelined in the business conversations. So there's a deep amount of the, the partnership and it's early stages right now, of course, for us to talk about some of this, but I am very much eager to work with IBM on um, upgrading how this movement that I helped start, um, how to basically upgrade it and help it kind of uh, speak to the business community. And I think IBM has powerful capabilities in that area that I'd love to tap. So that's what gets me excited about the partnership. What can we do now that we couldn't do before? Our customers will not have to wait on uh, the next release of Cloud Pack for Data to get any and every innovation that's happening outside in the open source community. Anaconda will be able to provide that using the private repository. They'll be able to manage what is white labeled and what is not internally, which packages do they feel like they, they want to allow their data scientists to use, uh, which is an added value prop. And Anaconda will be doing security testing for all of the innovation that's coming in from open source. So that will increase the confidence from an IT organization's perspective in these packages. It's a repository, but it's also a service by which Anaconda is increasing the level of trust in those uh, packages. And in case there are any you know, things that need to be fixed inside of these packages, Anaconda's reach into the community will enable us to you know, get these things back into open source. Now we've talked about Cloud Pack for data here before, but would you mind taking a minute or two just to describe uh, that technology? Cloud Pack for Data is really our data and AI platform that uh, you're able to take and run on any cloud from IBM cloud to competitor clouds. It basically provides you all that you need to get to a level where you're building applications that are infused with AI or to use you know, analytics and get insights. Everything from collecting the data, analyzing the data, organizing it, building models, infusing it, detecting drift, all of the stack, everything you need to get that done for an enterprise is what we have in Cloud Pack for Data. How many packages uh, do you support now, Peter? I know it was a couple hundred uh, not that long ago. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's way more than that. I mean, in the distribution itself, the main installer comes with a couple hundred, but we have thousands in the repository, and we're you know trying to get that up to tens of thousands in very short order. In terms of the ones that we scan and we're manually curating the security information around, that's on the order of thousands. You know, what should I be thinking if I'm an enterprise client that's looking to use some of these packages? Really, if you're an enterprise client looking to use some of this open source stuff, you don't have a lot of options right now. And this is why we created the product. And, and this is why Anaconda, in fact, is here, is that we are, we are here to help you actually get a chance to see what is acceptable, what is not. You know, one of the things that people don't think about a lot with this open source stuff is that there are many, many different ways that bad things can can slip in or vulnerabilities can slip in. And people are now you know, using these things to make real life or death decisions for millions of customers. You've got to step it up a little bit and actually have kind of take an enterprise security and governance point of view on it. So I got to ask you this question. Everything that I, you know, I, I do my research and it's Python, Python, Python. Mm -hmm. You got something against R? 
Oh no, we have nothing yeah. against R. In fact, okay. um, yeah, and in fact, we do support R. We have an automated way now of converting some of the R packages into Conda packages, so you can trace the dependencies between these. Because many people actually will use like a notebook and call out to Python and R. It's very polyglot. It's wonderful. The same security vulnerability questions apply to R as they apply to Python. There's even less coverage in R in the community around the stuff than there is in Python. And so we're trying to upgrade the, the overall uh, state of open data science, and that applies to all the languages. I got to believe, though, in all seriousness, that uh, obviously your preference is Python. That is what I use. That's right. Why are you slanted in that direction? It's what I started with. I mean, I've been doing Python since 99. I've watched yeah. it grow. I know it a lot. Absolutely advantages and disadvantages to the Python language and ecosystem compared to R. And I think I can speak quite objectively about both. There are some things that perhaps I would look at R for if I was doing more in the statistical area, using cutting edge you know, new stats research, there might be more available in the R world. But for everything I need to do, a lot of it is more oriented towards building applications and software pipelines, things like that. I think Python is a better fit. Where is Anaconda at its best? In other words, with uh, client use cases, kind of like a little bit derivative of the question I asked earlier. And where are you guys going in the future? You know, a lot of our customers, they are internally going through a bit of a struggle as they're trying to lean into digital transformation and I would say inferential data science driven transformation. There's some groups internally that want to, other groups that are resisting change. And when we get involved there, it can be, you know, we do it and we're good at it, helping to bridge those conversations. But I think where we really shine is with companies and organizations that have rolled up their sleeves and said, you know what, the world of the future is going to be powered by ML and AI, and we've just got to do this. There's no waiting for another five years to see what everyone else in our industry does. So with those organizations, when we work with them, we can talk about the full suite of things we can do. We can help from you know the very basics, like Shadi was talking about, getting the, the software pipelines in place, teaching people how to properly set up best practices to onboard open source software, all the way up to services and very, very premium high-end consulting around this particular tool, this cutting edge thing that was just published you know, two months ago, how do you leverage this uh, against your internal problems that you've got? And we can actually help with people you know, thinking about new kinds of data architectures, new data governance, all of it. We're at our best when we can bring the full power of the community and our individual innovation to businesses who are open to that, who are leaning into change. Where do you think, you know, where are you heading in the future? I mean, what are the big uh, pivots that you think or can foresee or try to guess? I think that a lot more businesses are going to have to in-house their technical expertise when it comes to data science and machine learning. Many businesses that have for the last 10, 15 years relied on outsourcing, they're going to realize that doesn't work when it comes to this sort of thing. Now, they will still need to use consultants and, and whatnot to help them get these things stood up, but they're going to want to retain a lot more technical staff across the organization, a lot more of the dollars will go to, in this industry, will go to businesses building internal practices because then the businesses can capture the value and the upside from that. Uh, whereas in the past, software, hardware, and sort of like um, transactional consulting has been a huge part of the business activity in the space of technology for the last 15 years. I think in a machine learning world, businesses are going to have to in-house that capability so what I look at is basically in that future that I see as being inevitable, um, what is the best role Anaconda can serve? And I, I see us as being almost more of a Bloomberg, more of a, an exchange for ideas and machine learning models and data sets. I see us as being a facilitator of a, a network of data scientists and innovators and, and practitioners. So, so those are the things that I'm trying to push the company towards. 
Why are you finding it uh, that the in-house technical expertise is going to be the AI paradigm of the future? You know, at the end of the day, the tools are used to help businesses make better decisions. And the decisions that are going to be made in the future have to have an appreciation of both the capabilities and the limitations of the technology. And to make that more concrete, what I would say is, you know, some, you know, big shot VP making a big business decision in whatever business in the world, they might look at a spreadsheet, they might look at an Excel document, they might look at a PDF report, and there's some charts in there, there's some graphs, and then they'll make a call. In the future, I mean, who, who makes that chart? What technology produced the graph? Doesn't matter to them. At that point, it could be Tableau, it could be Excel, it could be Power BI, it could be anything. But when it comes to businesses running on top of and within with a, a sort of AI ML nerve system running through them, you can't separate out the reporting from the inference, from the decisioning. It is all connected. And you can't have a VP that sits there and says, just give me a chart and I'll click one, I'll click A or B and that's my decision, right? The decision makers have to be in the loop. So it's not a fire and forget analytics. It's, it's a human in the loop kind of analytical system. And with that, you cannot separate the pilot from the plane. You've all got to be kind of in the same battle space together. So just with that perspective, that's what it is. That's kind of how I see it. And the ones who choose not to do that, by the way, and there'll be some who elect, maybe that's too hard and they'll elect not to do it. They're just going to get left behind. They're going to get completely smoked by the people who run businesses this way. Or is that another way of saying that, you know, your business needs to be integrated with your AI, your chief data officer, your AI processes, et cetera? Right. The fact that we can treat data management, information systems, and decisioning as three separate sort of silos of support that then reach up into the decision-making layer, that's got to go away. I mean, we've got to bring these things back together and running more in tandem with each other and in a more convivial fashion. And, and so I just see a reconfiguration of business in light of technology. Back in the day, we built information systems in a very integrated, holistic way. I think with these inferential systems moving forward, it will be the same. People will have to think about the whole suite of options and select hardware, software, data processing, inference, all these things and pull together and say, for this problem, for this particular product we're doing, we're going to rely on this configuration and call that an information system that's fully integrated. So I got to believe you're in many C-suites having this same discussion. You know, what's the biggest hurdle you have to get beyond to really you know, embrace ML, to drive AI, to keep models in production so you can make good business decision? Well, the, the mind is generally willing, but the body is weak. You know, when you have an organization of a few thousand people with budgets and with performance goals and structures, I mean, you just have a, you have businesses that have been structured around certain kinds of operational cadences, reporting cadences, a certain way of knowing. And so it almost, in some businesses, it almost seems impossible and it's almost like, you know what, we're going to have to bet on a startup challenger because this business is just too used to being a dominant rent seeker in its category. It simply has no ability to transform itself. Okay, Shadi, you know Peter and Anaconda very well. You take the hot seat. What questions should I be asking? You, you've taken over all of data and AI offering management. You might as well add podcast hosts to your resume as well. And go ahead and you ask it. Take it. I will. Peter, automation and data science, how far do you think we'll go? You can automate a lot, but you'll never take the human context out of it. And as you try to, the marginal cost in terms of kilowatt hours and carbon footprint becomes enormous. There's a fundamental equation that works against you, which is that for every new data set you bring in, there is an exponential amount of value it might add 
to the other data sets that you're already considering. But to throw arbitrary number of GPUs and whatnot at it to do automated feature engineering, that it also the cost goes up exponentially. So what you're really better off doing is um, up-leveling your internal staff and having people work with the data scientists, the domain experts, the people who know the problem domain, have them work with the data scientists to do really good, smart feature engineering. That's a part of data science, the science part of data science. That exploratory thing will never go away and it will never be cheap and fast. There's always cheaper and faster ways to do it if you include humans in the loop. If you were starting today in data science, given you know all the advances we've had, what would you say are the critical skills to focus on? The critical skills, you must have a solid grounding in the core machine learning. You must have a solid grounding in statistics. And then you must have a solid grounding in communications. It is going to become more and more the gradient that, that will separate good data scientists from more effective and successful ones versus less effective ones is that um, their ability to impact the organization. As data science becomes successful within businesses, then it gets measured by impact. And the ones who are most impactful are the ones who can scale their communications across the business better and with higher fidelity. Are you seeing uh, the data science community making progress on the ROI promise? Yes and no. I mean, people are starting to really recognize that communication is a huge part of the problem. Before, uh, people thought that, you know, oh, I'm getting asked for a fancy dashboard. I made a cool fancy dashboard. Everyone's happy. Yay. And now we're realizing, no, no, no. It's not just about making a fancy dashboard, right? It really is around communicating deeply the significance of what you found. And sometimes that communication, you know, it's, it's about giving people bad news or hard news. So I think in the data science world, that impact stuff, it's a work in progress. Uh, it's hard to make a blanket statement. In some cases, it's definitely getting better. But because it's getting used more, a lot more people are falling into that early trap. I signed up for a data science job, and all I'm doing is data wrangling all the time. I think we're suffering from almost like a being a victims of our own success in the adoption. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you said earlier about the in-housing. And I think you're poking on communication, but you're also poking on uh, to be able to influence a business, you really need to understand the business. With more and more technology and automation sort of solving some of the more, you know, need to be a hacker or need to understand how to work with machines, I would say that the understanding of the business and the communication will be leveled up drastically. And I sort of think this will be the force that will bring people back into in-housing because it's going to be really hard to have people from outside the org really get to that depth of understanding of the org, not just from a business perspective, but people and how to influence people internally. Would you see? Would you agree to that? Do you see that as a sort of combining force bringing us back in from outsourcing? We cannot allow data science to be pigeonholed or somehow shrunk down to being mere technique and mere tools. See, our industry, the tech industry, has a tendency to, to basically peddle this almost metaphysical fiction, which is, oh, if you buy this tool, or if you, if you use these techniques, then the following will occur. I say data science isn't a job. I try to promote this message that data science is literacy. And if your entire company is literate, then you're way better off than if you only have three people in ivory tower that are literate, um, and an army of scribes, and the whole bunch of people who can't read or write. And so if you want to upgrade the society of your firm to actually take advantage of what data science can offer, you've got to embrace that literacy as a transformational goal. Being reduced to mere technique is the worst thing we can do with data science. And the other point about this that people, you know, since we're on this, uh, on this particular podcast, uh, another point that bears repeating is this idea that information is not a noun. Everyone in the world uses information like a noun 
And John Perry Barlow of the EFF made this, well, also of the Grateful Dead, but, but he made this great statement at uh, one, uh, one point. He said, information is a verb. It's the dance, not the dancer. Information is the act of making sense, right? Or, or I think Gregory Bateson made that statement. Information is the difference that makes a difference, right? If you give somebody a thing, you just drop on them some quote unquote information, or you drop on them some data, or you drop on them some insight, it's not necessarily information if it's not helping them make better sense of the world or take better actions, make better decisions. And in order for that to happen, the communication there is not a one-way broadcast. It's a two-way full duplex communication between the business person trying to make better decisions and trying to understand better what's going on. And then the technologist in the back who can harness all the software and hardware and all these amazing things that are being built right now. But it's a connection and it's a two-way street. So if we view data science as just another tool, another set of techniques to dump even glossier dashboards in front of some VP that's just going to wing it and make a call based on his or her gut, that's not effective data science and that's not effective data science communications. I love what you're saying about uh, information as a verb. I think it, it really sums it super well. How do you think about data science from a research perspective? I'm not talking about the science aspect. I'm talking about the exploratory process that, that happens before the engineering process kicks in? I think the data science practice will ultimately bifurcate into what we currently call data science, will probably bifurcate into an exploratory data science, and then something that's more akin to, I guess, what people are now calling machine learning engineering. But the precursor to machine learning engineering, a part of that data science stuff will get sucked into that. And it's going to be like maintaining models and features and, and tweaking features, things like that. It's more ongoing kind of stuff. Uh, one might call it production. And then the exploratory stuff will almost, I think, run maybe in a different org, but it, or at least it will have to run a different cadence. Because here's the thing about science and exploration. It doesn't respect your business timing, right? It really, when someone has a flash of insight, when some new technique comes down the pipeline, someone reads a paper and spends all night uh, and all weekend working on it, and you know, Eureka has an inspirational insight, that doesn't happen on schedule. But that can make a 100x difference to your bottom line. So you can't ignore that kind of thing, but you also can't bank on it. The way I see companies uh, deal with that is they have a separate exploration area and they have the production area. And there's engineering and there's all sorts of stuff happening in both, both cases, but they sort of operate in different modalities. There's different business drivers, different accounting. Um, so you might see this in pharmaceutical where there's a, lo there's a large research component and there's absolutely a productionization component. You see it in oil and gas. In fact, one of the leading... Uh, periodicals in the in the oil and gas industry is called EMP, exploration and production, right? Because it costs $50 million to drill a hole, and then you could produce billions of dollars of oil out of it. So I think data science will basically fall into this mode. Just one last question before I return it to Al. What advice do you have to your product people for when their engineering counterparts start a podcast? Read the room. Uh, <laughs> pick an audience. Pick an audience, cultivate that audience, and stick with it. It's like any kind of product, really. I mean, the podcast is a product. Find the audience, cultivate the audience. Don't be afraid to say no. Don't be afraid to say, you know, that person, you know, haters going to hate no matter what you do. If you take a point of view, haters going to hate. So just say, you know what, maybe this podcast isn't for that person, but it's for this group of here, and we're going to stick with it. And I think that's how you make really great content. Shoddy hater is going to hate. All right. Hey, look, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I enjoy, usually I'm not on this side and it's great to, to sit and listen. All great questions. I have to admit, Shadi, you did your homework. I like it. So Peter, a couple other questions I have for you. You know, at, at IBM here, we've done a lot of technology around drift, auto AI, explainability. What, what's the next key emerging tech you see on the horizon for data science? I think that there's not been sufficient research that's made it into industry practice. 
around more effective data exploration techniques. And it's a combination of software. It's a combination of like psychometrics, things like that. I'm a Viz guy, like I love Viz. And there's so much more that can be done there at scale. Another area I think that's really um, going to be important is, especially with everything moving to the cloud and so many more people harnessing you know, uh, cloud native approaches, uh, we're going to get to a point where the number of cores you use is no longer the limitation. The limitation is how much are you paying per whatever amount of lift on your rock curve, right? So what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up needing data scientists to have a visceral understanding of what is good, what is state of the art, what kind of performance should I expect? So I would like to see the industry embrace and adopt more standards around standard performance, because that'll get us to a far better Mm. point of efficiency. Right now, it is so early stages, completely wild west out there. But I think that would be a good way to mature the, the field a bit more. And it has to be done in a thoughtful way, obviously. But I, I would be excited to see that. And then I'm always just personally super blown away by what's being done in generative adversarial networks right now. In having computers and having neural nets generate content, it's a little bit of a spooky and, and creepy area. But at the same time, it's teaching us a lot about how humans perceive what is real and what's intelligent. And I think that's a really good thing because the next barrier is to for us to get humility and to say, you know what, some things that are going to be superhuman level intelligence will do things that are intelligent beyond what our notion of intelligent is. And so when we talk about explainability, in fact, I mean, you mentioned that as a term, I think explainability to some extent is almost like condescending down to human intuition. And so we have to get to a point of accountability without a reductive explainability. And so those are the frontiers of research I would like to see probed more. I know you are on the board of uh, for the Center of Humane Technology. Tell me a little bit about uh, the Center for Humane Technology. Yeah, so the mission of the Center for Humane Technology really as an um, effort to rein in some of the toxicity and damage we're seeing from social media applications and the weaponization of the attention economy. And, uh, and I didn't start. I wasn't one of the co-founders, but I know the co-founders pretty well. The term humane technology is there just to remind people that we should be building tech to help human flourishing. And that's the only reason we should be doing tech. Sometimes it's fun. Look, I'm a geek and a hacker. I love to do things just because I can. But when we talk about deploying technology that affects millions and millions of lives, we can't just do it because we can. And on the back end, hope that either A, you know, we don't get our wrists slapped by the government, or B, we don't end up you know, accidentally poisoning millions of people. We've got to be more responsible than that. We're at a point now where I think E.O. Wilson's quote is, we are Paleolithic emotions or Paleolithic um, brainstem, and we have medieval institutions, and we have godlike technology. We can absolutely hurt ourselves with godlike technology. And worse, right now, the technology that we have, it's not even like a nuclear bomb. Like when a nuclear bomb goes off, anyone can see the video and be like, hey, that's really bad. Maybe I don't want that in my backyard. But when these kinds of, the kinds of technologies we're building around automated inference start impacting people's lives, it's totally invisible. Well, I mean, right now we're in this pandemic, right? Bioengineering is another area where we need to really, really respect, have some humility about the limits of our ability to control the science and technology because it's invisible. We could hurt ourselves with gray goo. We could hurt ourselves with something microscopic. So I think with technology, we need to, at this point in time as an industry, really stand up and say, we're going to build technology, put the cart after the horse. We're going to say, we're going to build this tech to make this particular aspect of human endeavors better. As opposed to, we're going to build this tech because we can, and oops, by the way, it's just made all these people unhappy. Why the name Anaconda? Oh, yeah. Well, um, the original name of the company was actually Continuum Analytics, and it was like a, a treble entendre, if you will. There's like multiple meanings and puns laid in onto that. But then we produced 
a distribution of Python, you know, so Python plus various libraries. And my, my initial thought, and it came up in a millisecond, I was like, oh, it's Python for big data. So it should be like a big snake. Why not Anaconda? And we did some, you know, trademark searches and it looked like Anaconda was available. So we used Anaconda. And then Anaconda really took off and lots of people knew what it was. And we go to trade shows and be like, hey, we're continuum analytics. And people would kind of give us a blank stare and would say, we make Anaconda, which you may have heard of. And people are like, oh, we love Anaconda. We use it all the time. So at some point after a couple of years of this, we decided, you know what? We should just name ourselves Anaconda. <laughs> Two quick questions. Let's see if you know this. What is the longest snake in the world? I don't know. Is it an Anaconda? No, it's the python. It's the what python. is the heaviest and the biggest snake in the world? Is that an anaconda? Yes, that's oh, an anaconda. Right <laughs> you think you look really bad if that was like his, he only answers anaconda to every question. Uh, that's the answer for everything, right? Yeah. Hey, well, I, got yeah, I got one for you. What was Nicki Minaj's breakout hit song with a totally not safe for work video that yeah. that overtook the search results? <laughs> Back I, in I, I wondered if at like events you were singing Anaconda ain't got nothing left whatever. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, we finally have surpassed the the Nicki Minaj uh, music video hits in on the Google search and Google Trends. It took us a few years, but we're we're beyond that now. So. <laughs> Great, great. All right. So one more question. I get, Well, I got two more questions. All right. Sure. What do you do for fun, man? Oh, I, uh, a lot of things. You know, I, tr I try to be present for my kids, but I enjoy cooking. I enjoy photography and I play violin. And I spend a lot of my time nowadays nerding out on humane technology and thinking about how we move civilization forward. All right. I want you to take this one very seriously. Now, listen okay. to this one. Hypothetically, if you were a VP in offering management for data science... <laughs> What offerings would you be prioritizing right now? Well, it depends on the horizons, depends on the company I'm at. But in general, I would be optimizing for helping the practitioners look like heroes. So helping them be able to have impact across the organization. I give you, I'll give you the right answer. Whatever Al Martin is working on. That's, that's the real answer. <laughs> that's what he was looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're welcome, Shadi. You're welcome. All right. Hey, look, I got to play one little game and then we'll call it quits. This is what I do. Would you rather... Uh, this could be for you, Peter. We, you've already done this, I think, Shadi. Mm -hmm. So a couple quick questions. you got to pick one side or the other. All right. All right. Ready, Peter? Yep. Established business or startup? Startup. Obviously, you're an entrepreneur. You've had several of them. I saw it. I looked on your LinkedIn. Unless I was going into a uh, established business to uh, really like help it transform, for me, it's that being able to have uh, a say in the vision. That's where I contribute the most value, I think. So if I can't do that, then I'm not. you're going to find better people than me to add value. Oh, good. Software engineer or offering manager? Uh, software engineer. Because <laughs> I miss it. Uh, I miss coding. I'm, there's no shade on the offering. <laughs> <laughs> Midwest or the coast? You're not counting coast. Texas in the Midwest, clearly, because Texas is its own, its own country, right? So this would be very <laughs> oh, clear. I didn't consider that. Sorry about Yeah, I, I forgot that. It's, it, you know, Texas is its own civilization. No, I got that. If, would you rather the computer make the, the diagnosis or the human make the diagnosis? common sort of maladies, I would have the computer make the diagnosis. For exceptional maladies, I would have the person make the diagnosis. All right, fair enough. Autopilot or driver? Driver. All right, and you just kind of countered yourself there, I think. I didn't think that. Uh, no, all no good. because the stakes are so high when it comes to driving, so I'm much more risk adverse. So I'd rather take the burden and the cost and the pain in the butt of being the driver and avoid the massive negative downside consequences of you know slamming into a brick wall at 85 miles an hour. Sorry, 75 miles an hour. So yeah. Oh, I think we can see it's what you're doing. <laughs> it's a marginal trade-off question. 
Shadi, any stock tips you want to leave our listeners with? I know you to be a stock entrepreneur, a stock expert. Be careful of the market. It's still not safe. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, good, good tip. All right. Hey, guys, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you, Shadi. Thank you, Peter, for being here. I greatly appreciate it. I learned a lot. And now I've got a, something I can put on Twitter as well. Information is a verb. It's the act of making sense. It's the difference. How do you say it? It's the difference that makes the difference. A, yeah, information is difference that makes a difference. Data science is better informationy. I like that. Yep. See, and I, I I'm stealing all of that from like Bateson and from John Perry Barlow. It's not my stuff, but I'm just trying to amplify it. No, I like it. I like it. Hey, thank you, Peter, for being here. Seriously, thanks for I'm having me, Al. This has been great. It has been great. Uh, thank you, Shadi. Appreciate it. Great questions, by the way. I think you've got podcast hosts in your future. <laughs> Something does fire. All right. For everybody listening, thank you once again. I appreciate it. Uh, For any comments, questions, suggestions, please hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Otherwise, I'll see you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out.